him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, and likely what it means there, there was they said they went a day's journey, and then they realized that he wasn't with them. That's one day. Another day going back, that's two days. And then the third day, they're in earnest looking for him. So it's likely the first day that they were back, they were able to, to begin. So it's not like they were walking around for three days in the city wondering where to find this kid. Um, first... 46 again it came about that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of teachers but both listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers and when they saw him they were astonished and his mother said to him son why have you treated us this way behold your father and i have been anxiously looking for you and he said to them why is it that you were looking for me did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. No, just reading this, it is it does strike us as being somewhat interesting. <laughs> Again, it's a glimpse into the childhood of Jesus that we don't see anywhere else. None of the other gospels record this. It's the only glimpse that we have from early childhood, from the infancy, from the wise men account, which he may have been two at that point, to his public adult ministry near the age of thirty. But what is it that that we believe the Spirit of God would have us to glean from this text here as important truths for us. Well, first of all, I think there is this. There is the mystery of Jesus' humanity. There's the mystery of Jesus' humanity. We talked about this some last week, just that we have the the two natures in one person, the divine. He is perfectly divine. He is perfectly God. And He is perfectly human. He is all of both. He is all God. And He is all man. But He is one person. So we have the complexities of the the two natures and this one person thrust upon us here again. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And then in verse 52, kind of like bookends for this text, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. Now how how do we maintain that Jesus is fully God and human, and that his human experience is anything like we would consider to be normal. If he's fully God, how can his human experience be normal? Well, we can maintain that simply because the Scriptures reveal it to us as such. It's very normal. Very normal childhood. Understanding that he was free from the from the influence of sin. But his childhood was very normal, just as we would expect any childhood experience to be. In our text here, we find that the emphasis the emphasis here at this point of Jesus' life is upon his humanity. Verse 40, and the child. And the child continued. It doesn't say, and the Christ, does it? says, and the child, and it refers there later to the boy, Jesus. 
and verse 43. The boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. So there's something of an emphasis here upon the humanity of Jesus here. And the description of his, of his experience, again, it compels us to, you know, we look at it and read it and we kind of have to step back and think, all right, there is, he's God, he's fully God, and he's man, he's fully man, but you still got to step back and scratch your head. How in the world does this all go together? When you speak of his experience in verse 40, it says that he continued to grow. He continued to become strong and he was increasing in wisdom and he kept increasing in wisdom and his stature according to verse 52. That all sounds pretty normal, doesn't it? It's what you would expect to read when you're reading about someone's childhood. That he's just growing and he's increasing in wisdom and in stature. That's right, that's normal. But how does one think of such experiences in one who is God? When one who is God, the one who is immutable, the one who is unchangeable, the one who has all the perfections of the Godhead, there's nothing to be added, nothing to be changed, nothing to be removed. He is perfect. The one who is omniscient, the one who knows all things. This is Jesus Christ who is God. And it says He is increasing in wisdom. You know, Colossians 2, 2, it says that in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, when did that happen? It says here he's increasing in wisdom. And when Paul speaks of him, he says that it's in him all the treasures, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. He is our wisdom. Paul says to the church of Corinth. Well, some have considered this and they've concluded, well, it must be that Jesus laid aside some aspects of his deity, such as immutability, such as omniscience. He laid those aspects of his deity aside. I hope you would recognize that that would be heretical. How does one, how does God become anything less than God? How can God lay aside any aspects of his own being, of his divinity, and be and be and still be God. How does it happen? It can't happen. And so we have insisted, we do insist, as through all the church age has insisted, that Jesus is fully God. He has all the, all the characteristics of God as he had through all of eternity. He did not lay aside any aspect of his divinity. To do so is to change the essence of his being who he is. And he can't do that. God can be nothing other than God. That's it. He can't stop being omniscient. He can't stop being omnipresent. Wait a minute, omnipresent? Wait a minute, Jesus is omnipresent? He was here. He was walking among men. He can't lay those things aside. So when Paul speaks of his laying aside anything, what he's laying aside is his, is his willingness of his glory and he's taking upon himself hum, humiliation in, before men, the nature of humanity. But he's not laying aside his divinity. cannot do that. Well, what's the solution to such a thing? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and I know you're thinking, I hope you got an answer to this question too, right? Well, I'm a, I'm a smart guy in some respects. And when you get something like this, you let somebody else say it. <laughs> so uh, I pulled out <clears throat> one of my, well, it's probably my favorite systematic theology, Burkhoff. 
to uh, help us think through this thing and and see us where he's again Burkhoff is very good at bringing these things for, for, through church history as well let me just share with you as he speaks here on the natures of Christ from the earliest times and more particularly since the council of Chalcedon the church confessed the doctrine of the two natures of Christ and then listen to this the council did not solve the problem presented by a person who is at once human and divine but only sought to ward off some of the solutions which were offered and were clearly recognized as erroneous. And that's what we have in a lot of the confessions. It's not that we've resolved all the mystery, but we are going to counter the things that cannot be right, the errors that come. You know, we can't figure this thing. And Neil and I were talking today, you know, what you see as you try to deal with something like this, where you have the, the two... The two natures of Jesus Christ in one person that, you know, the heresies that come in, what are they trying to do? They're trying to, they're trying to tie up all the loose ends. Let's make this something we can get a hold of here. And so it must be this. And what you find is there's the, there's the minimizing of his deity or, or in fact the denial of it. Or there's the denying of humanity. And if you go to the scripture, you must come away with both. He is fully God. He is fully man. The church accepted the doctrine of the two natures in one person not because it had complete a complete understanding of the mystery, but because it clearly saw in it a mystery revealed by the Word of God. That's why we say this. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to try to make two natures in one person. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not us. Who comes up with that kind of thing? Who comes up with the idea of a trinity? So there's always... Attack, the attack upon that. <clears throat> Let me read a little bit further what he says in another section. This is on the unipersonality of Christ. In other words, it, there is one person. This is not this is not a person who is God and man and two, two persons. There's two natures. He's one person. He's talking about the unipersonality of Christ. It says the year 451 A.D., the Council of Chalcedon met, formulated the faith of the church respecting the person of Christ, and declared him, listen, to be acknowledged in two natures, I'm going to change the, the wording just a little bit. Unconfused, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being in no wise taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. In other words, he didn't become less God because he became human. And he didn't become any less human because, because it was God. Fully God, fully human. And again, this formulation is mainly negative and simply seeks to guard the truth against various heretical views. Again, he goes on to say, it makes no attempt to explain the mystery involved. It's a mystery that is not susceptible of a natural explanation. The, gate, the great central miracle of history was permitted to stand forth in all of its grandeur. The supreme paradox, to use Barthian, speaking of Karl Barth, Barthian language, God and man in one person. We are simply told what Jesus is without any attempt to show how he became what he is. The church has never gotten beyond the formula of Chalcedon. It has always recognized the incarnation as a mystery which defies explanation. And then one other part I want to read here. It 
says the properties of both the human and the divine natures are now the properties of the person and are therefore ascribed to this person. The person can be said to be almighty. Listen, this is Jesus. The person can be said to be almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, and so on, but can also be called a man of sorrows, of limited knowledge and power, and subject to human want and miseries. We must be careful not to understand the term to mean that anything peculiar to the divine nature was communicated to the human nature, or vice. In other words, he didn't become a superhuman because he was God. He was a normal human. All right? He didn't become anything less of God because he took on humanity. Fully God, fully human. Must be careful not to understand the term to mean that anything peculiar to divine nature was communicated to the human nature or vice versa. Or that there is an interpenetration of the two natures as a result of which the divine is humanized and the human is deified. They're not mixed. It's not mixed. Fully God, fully man, together in one person, but they're not mixed. Humanity is not deified. The deity is not humanized. You got that? <laughs> Are you having a great time so far here this morning? <laughs> you know, it just it gives to us just something of the complexity of of what we're trying to think through here. And as we and as we do think through it, you know, we just be careful that we're not going to shortchange the teaching of Scripture because we can't wrap wrap our little brains around this thing. The reason I said this is the mystery of Jesus' humanity. The Lord God of heaven who is omniscient, who knows all things. The Lord God who and he is increasing in wisdom. The one who is omnipresent, who is in every place. And here he is, localized in a human body. How does that happen? I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. Time to get a new pastor, right? <laughs> well, somebody give me an answer. <laughs> well, sorry. If you find one, you probably don't want to Jesus' human existence, his experience, it was genuine and it was normal. Look in verse 46, as it says, he's in the temple. He came out after three days and they found him in the temple. They were sitting in the midst of the teachers. What's he doing? <clears throat> this is the Lord of glory who knows all things. What's he doing? He is listening to them and he is asking them questions. He's asking. He's learning. It's a learning process implied here. Verse 47 all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Yeah, he showed wonderful insight and understanding and likely beyond his years of, of 12 years. There weren't many 12-year-olds running around who were able to converse and understood spiritual things as Jesus did here. Because he was free from the effects of humanity's fall into sin, but it was still a very normal human existence. But truly, such a truth is beyond our understanding and I'm not going to go beyond Burkhoff we're not going to try to explain this thing but we are going to acknowledge it this is the teaching of scripture but it compels us to worship Jesus you know it's not just a great story folks it's the Lord it's, he is one to be worshipped we come and we worship Jesus our Lord and our Savior and one who insists upon understanding this truth before embracing it will never come to embrace it you're not, going to, you're not going to figure this out. There is the embracing of faith wrought by the Spirit of God in our hearts that we see this, this is true. 
what, mu- what one must grasp, what one must grasp, is the necessity of Jesus being God and man. He's got to grasp that. That He might perfectly represent each party. He can perfectly, completely represent God. He can perfectly, completely represent man. Two parties who have been opposed to bring them to reconciliation, to peace. That we must grasp. So there's the mystery of Jesus' humanity. It's not resolved here, folks. It's put out here in front of us. And <laughs> now you're going to spend a lot of time on this text and think, oh, and scratch your head. But I hope the ultimate result is this. You fall on your knees and say, Lord, you're great. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. There's the mystery here. That you became a man. That you lived as a boy and you went and you increased in wisdom and stature and you came and you were just like other boys. Without sin. So there's the mystery of Jesus' humanity. There's also the marvel of Jesus' heredity. Yes, there is the normality of Jesus' human existence emphasized here. And I think that's the case. But we also see His uniqueness. His uniqueness is brought to light. Verse 48 and 49. When they saw Him, they were astonished. His mother said to Him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Or more literally, it could be translated in the things of my father. The King James Version, I says, in my father's business, I think, or something like that. Do you not know that I had to be in the things of my father? It indicates to us there's something of an awareness in Jesus here. That's a 12-year-old boy. There's an awareness of his unique relation with his heavenly Father. We can't say a lot. We don't, want to, we don't want to read in things that are not here, but there's something as he says. Why is it you're looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my Father's house? Look at the words. What were Mary's words to him? So behold, your Father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Jesus' words. Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? Inference. Wouldn't you expect me? Wouldn't you expect me to be in the affairs in your place of greatest spiritual emphasis pertaining to my Heavenly Father? Would you expect me to be here? <clears throat> Do you not remember who I am? You know, his heart is drawn into things of God, things of, of genuine spirituality. And he naturally gravitates to the place where his spiritual appetite is to be nourished and satisfied. So where do you find him? You find him in the temple where there's discussion, where there's learning, there's training in the things of God. And that's where he is. Just a little bog path here. That's the longing of every godly parent, isn't it? We see our hearts of our children gravitating, gravitating to this place where their spiritual appetites are nourished and satisfied. There'll be a little bit of joy in the heart of Mary. But why have you done this to us? Mary, Joseph, do you not know this? With all the revelation at my conception, all the revelation given to you at my birth, have you forgotten? You know, perhaps they had. We're 12 years removed 
from the things that we've been reading about in the first part of this book. No reason to expect that in within those that 12-year period that there was anything outside the ordinary within their lives. Yeah. I guess it depends on what you want to call ordinary to some degree, but you know, we have no reason to believe that there were angelic messages continuing to be given to them. Life likely seemed pretty normal. Oh, yeah, he's, he's a good kid. Well, as a matter of fact, he's a great, well, he's an exceptional kid, okay? <laughs> but pretty normal. Normal existence. Twelve years down the road, can't you just imagine that it would have been easy for Mary to have forgotten and chosen to forget this notion which we mentioned last week in verse 35, this notion of a sword piercing her soul. Maybe this thing's not going to pan out like we thought. Maybe it's not going to be that painful experience that we thought. You know? Here we are with our 12-year-old boy. Life is good. He's a great kid. I can envision this for a few more years to come. I don't think it's so far-fetched. And maybe this event serves as something of a a wake-up and a reminder to Mary and Joseph. Verse 50, it says, They didn't understand. They didn't understand the statement that he made. What have you been thinking about, Joseph and Mary, for the last 12 years? This is the Messiah, remember? This is the Christ. This is God with us. In the last part of the 18th century, it's called what's recognized as the age of reason. And one of the things they grappled with, again, was the two natures of Christ. And as they began to... They called the age of reason in that they were looking to understand these things just by reasoning through these things. So going to the Scriptures for divine revelation, that's out. You don't do that. You must be able to reason through these things. And this thing of... These two natures in Jesus. How'd they work through this? Says individual philosophers and theologians tried their hand at solving the problem presented by Christ in order that they might offer the church a substitute for the two nature doctrine. They took their starting point, and listen to this, they took their starting point in the human Jesus. Okay? Here's the starting point. He's human. And even after a century of painstaking research found in Jesus no more than a man with a divine element in him, they could not rise to the recognition of him as their Lord and their God. And so he was called a man with a supreme God consciousness, a man having the value of a God, a man standing in a continual inward fellowship of love with God, a God-filled man. A man with the inrush of the divine and in the subconscious. But Christ is and remains merely, in their thinking and in their conversation, a man. Merely a man. So, beyond that, in the liberal schools, it's been continued that Jesus is referred to as a great ethical teacher or a great apocalyptic seer. He can see what's going to take place or... Or a peerless leader to an exalted destiny. They regard the Christ of the church as the creation of Hellenism or of Judaism or of the two combined. In other words, that 
what we have given to us in the gospel accounts of, and then even in the rest of the New Testament of the person, the work of Jesus was fabricated in the minds of a people influenced by Hellenism, the Greek influence, or by Judaism. They made this stuff up about Jesus. <coughs> you know, can Mary and Joseph, could they have forgotten just exactly who this Jesus is? Do they have become so focused upon His humanity that they have lost focus upon His divinity? Well, are we not prone to do much of the same today? When we speak of the Incarnation, we think of, we speak of it annually. It's thrust upon us every December. When we speak of the Incarnation, how much thought do we give to it in remembering that this is God? We consider the years of a lad who once walked upon this earth, and we have one glimpse given to us here in our text, but folks, there was a lifetime of this. There was a lifetime up to 30 years that we know very little about of Jesus walking upon this earth. Do we remember that this was God? Do we think about that? We speak so often of the cross and the death and the burial of Jesus. Are we remembering, are we focusing that this is God who has died? It's God. Say, well, of course I remember. Then why is it that we can think of such things and we can speak of such things so often that our and our minds are not filled with awe and wonder? Why is it that our hearts and our affections are, are so often cold and indifferent to Him when we can think about these things as being God? Why is that? Why is it that so often that we can think about these things and our eyes remain dry and, and these are wonders that are beyond comprehension? That God has died for me. You know, don't tell me Mary and Joseph couldn't have forgotten. I do. I do. Not that I don't forget the details and the reality, the actuality of it, the historicity of it. But I lose something, the marvel of it. The marvel of Jesus being God. Jesus, God, paying the horrible price for my sins. Jesus, God, paying the price for my crimes committed against Him. That it required nothing less than the blood of God to pay for my sin. See, Jesus was not on a pleasure trip when He came here. Apart from God's good pleasure. And it brings us to the consideration of our final point. That is this. The model of Jesus' humility. Scripture does focus on the redemptive work of Christ. But it also gives to us times where we are invited and in fact commanded to consider His model or His example for us. One to be followed. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, the words there to husbands is this. Husbands, you love your wives as Christ has loved the church. He's an example for you to follow. Alright? 
John 13, 15. Jesus said, I've left you an example there when He's washing the disciples' feet. I've left you an example to follow. Not in the washing of feet, literally, but in the humbling of oneself and serving serving one another. And Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, there he's speaking of Christ, and it says that He came and He left you an example to follow in His steps. So yes, He is one who has redeemed us, but He's also lived here among us and given us an example. Lived as a model before us. And very quickly, I just want to think about the model of Jesus' humility here. His humility in this. First of all, we see that He became a human, a baby, a child. Isn't that enough? What a step of humiliation. His humiliation did not begin at Calvary, folks. His humiliation began at Bethlehem. Or could I say in the womb of Mary. There's when this humiliation began. That's when He condescended. That's when He stepped down and He humbled Himself for us. When He entered into the human race. Verse 40. A child. A child growing and becoming strong. That's humility. But we also see the humility in that he is subject to human authority. Verse 51, he went down with Joseph and Mary, his parents, and he came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. The humility of subjecting himself to human authority. This is the sovereign Lord of glory before whom all bow. Placing himself in subjection to those whom he's created. That's humility. There is the sorrow of not being understood. Verse 48, And they saw and they were astonished. His mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? We're not expected this of you. You've done pretty well up to now. Right? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said, Why is it you were looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They didn't understand. Verse 50. The sorrow of not being understood. The Lord of wisdom and who is doing the revelation of God's wisdom. As we read just, I think it's past Wednesday night over in, in uh, Romans chapter 11. Just the last portion of that, that chapter. Though, the depths and the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, who has first given him that it might be paid back to him, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Who is this? This is Jesus. Jesus. In the depths of the riches of his wisdom, his knowledge of God, he is he's acting according to the wisdom of God, and he does not understood. Just the sorrow of that. And you would hope if anybody would get what's going on to be Joseph and Mary, they don't get it. Understand. It's humility. Placing yourself. Placing yourself in the midst of a people who do not understand you. There's the stigma of his hometown. Verse 20. Verse 39, sorry. When they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth. What do you know about Nazareth? Well, Nathaniel helps us on that, doesn't he? You remember what Nathaniel said? 
Was it Andrew that went to him and said, Come, we, we, found, we found the Lord. You come. He said, What's it say? Any good thing come out of Nazareth? You kind of get the idea there's a little bit of a stigma there, don't you? I don't know the area right here to make an application. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Whatever. Doug, where's, where's, where's the stigma around here? Well, you've been here a long time. You know? There's a stigma with Nazareth. He's not in Jerusalem in the palace. He's in Nazareth. And nothing good comes out of Nazareth is the implication. <clears throat> How low? How well, how low will he go? Subject to human authority, the sorrow of not being understood, the stigma of the hometown Nazareth, and then we know the rest of the story. Paul tells us about it, which we know about it, but he addresses it in Philippians chapter two, verse eight. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. That's how low he will go. The eternal one dies but the eternal one dies by choice a death that by its nature is considered shameful before men accursed by God shameful before men and accursed by God that's humility and it is in that context that Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So then the question comes, how low will we go? <coughs> how much of our reputation are we willing to part with how much of our pride are we willing to swallow for the sake of God and His glorious kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of others? How low will you go? Jesus is the Lord of glory. If he can step down, condescend so far to stand in my place and to stand with me, surely I can step down from my imagined glory, my vain glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of others. He's a model to us of humility. <clears throat> he left supreme glory that was rightfully His. Folks, <laughs> we got nothing. We don't have any glory. So let's just take that little tiny imagined step down and give ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for others. Whatever it may mean. To be honest with you, I'm having to ask myself sometimes, what is that going to mean? You know, when Jesus went to share the gospel, 
He did a lot of sharing with the down and outers, didn't he? The poor, the needy, sinners. That's the gospel. How low will we go? Let's be careful lest we make the gospel something for people of our economic status that we're comfortable with. Now, I long for a congregation where you can look across and you can see diversity in economic standing. You can see the wealth and you can see the poor, but you see them coming together because they are wanting Christ. To see the diversity of race, I long for that in a congregation. How low will we go? Well, Jesus has set the standard. And you're not going to go as low as Him. He's taken the low place. He's got it. God gives grace. As we consider and think on these truths, there is a great mystery here. The humanity of Jesus. We're not going to, we can't answer all that. can't resolve the, the questions that it raises. But they're true. And we worship Him. And there is the marvel of His heredity. He is indeed God the Son. Equal with God. But there's also a model here of His humility. <clears throat> Condescending. How low will it go? Well, we know the story. How low will we go and follow His example? For His sake. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we confess that in many respects we can leave here this morning with more questions than we do answers, but we also know that there is enough truth that we can take and seek to apply. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of your gospel and sharing to the uttermost parts of the world, sharing to those most needy. Lord, help us to be faithful to your calling. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.